The scripture reading for today will be a little bit longer than is printed in your bulletin. It will be 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come, un- we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Thanks, Abby. Sorry about uh, the... A little bit longer scripture. If you want to pull out your phone or your Bible and, and kind of follow us along that way, that'd be great. Uh, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, you can. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series called Practical Transformation this morning. And we're doing something really purposeful in this series. We're, we're walking through our liturgy, kind of the elements of our worship service, and we're dividing them out. And we're kind of doing a deep dive on each. And the purpose of this is because we truly believe that the elements of our service, uh, that Christ uses them to transform us. And so by kind of divvying them out and, and diving deep on each one, we're kind of having the opportunity to see all the ways in which this happens. And so we've looked at the call to worship and the confession sequence, the passing of the peace, and last week looked at the prayers of the people, um, which we didn't do today because we got to do a baptism which was a blessing. Uh, but today we're going to look at, actually, uh, the other sacrament that we believe in as a church, and it's communion. And uh, typically, uh, we would have done the, re- the preaching of the Word uh, and, and the Word itself. That's what's actually next in our liturgy. Uh, but we had a little bit of a scheduling snafu, so uh, I'm actually out of town officiating a wedding next weekend when I was supposed to preach it. It was just a little bit of a mess. So, we're going to do communion before the word, not how it's supposed to be. I apologize. Uh, sacraments come after the word, but here we are. Uh, last summer, Andrea and I uh, had uh, a, the wedding of one of her childhood best friends out west. And so uh, we were going to go out to Washington for a week and celebrate the wedding with her family. And we decided uh, before that trip that we would uh, have a little bit of a vacation ourselves. 
So we tacked four days on the front side of the trip and to go out west before the rest of the family got there and just the two of us without kids have some vacation time. What I learned is that uh, through our tennis years together, we now look at vacation time, or we did, very differently. Uh, In my mind, I was thinking, wow, no kids, no nap times, no diapers. Let's go to a city. Let's explore it. Like, let's get the full experience of us as adults. It's going to be amazing. We'll go to L.A. or San Francisco or Portland, somewhere great. It'll be awesome. And Dre was like, nah. Let's go to wine country. Let's just go and we'll get a nice place and we'll just relax for four days and we'll just go to wineries and we'll lay around and we'll rest and it'll be wonderful. And um, to me, I was like, wow, that sounds really boring and the city sounds awesome. Well, we, uh, we go out there and we split the difference, right? I get two days in the city. She gets two days in wine country. So we go to San Francisco for two days and we traipse around. We stay with one of our best friends out there and we hit the pavement hard. We go really hard. Lots of fun. Full San Francisco experience. And we were exhausted. And we get to wine country. And we get there and I do lay down in our nice place. And I'm like, wow, this is really really nice. And we do go to the winery and we see how the wine is made and we get to touch the leaves. And uh, this other place we went to was like super hip and ridiculous. It was like made for Instagram, but it was awesome. Um, And I I just want to confess to y'all that I was wrong. (laughs) I was really, really, really wrong. I should not have spent those two days in San Francisco. We should have gone four days in wine country. I would have rested the full experience that I needed was not a city, it was rest. Now, here's why I tell you this. After that time, just those two days, I I, I really did tell Andrea, I was like, man, I wish we would have spent four days here. Because after those two days, just those two days, I felt full, rested, I felt um, like uh, energy that I hadn't felt in a long time. And I think if I had four, I would have been like a new person. In a sense, I think that we are all looking for fullness of life and experience often. And I don't mean, um, and maybe sometimes it is looking for something like a big city that we think is going to really give us something that's going to excite us. But the real reason I tell you this story is because we believe truly that it's at the table here at communion that we experience the fullness of Christ. It's at a table that we're fed mind, body, and soul, and we share in this experience of Jesus unlike anything else. It's at the table that we uh, share in the remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus made. That's why every week in the litany we say, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, because at the table, specifically, all of us as God's people share in that idea The fullness of what we are looking for is actually a person. And when we come to the table, when we take of the bread and we drink of the cup, we experience his fullness in a way unlike anything else we do. But we don't always view coming to the table in this way, do we? We sometimes see it as a weird ritual. Sometimes we see it as simple obedience that we follow because Jesus told us to do it in the Gospels. Uh, we see it as something that 
is not meaningful and has become stale over time. Or whether uh, maybe you're here this morning, your sin gets in the way. We worry whether we're worthy enough to take it. Whether we're supposed to, after all we've done, we, uh, of course, know our hearts the best, right? Often the table seems empty rather than full. But this speaks to a deeper question. Let me ask you guys this. Do you experience the fullness of Christ regularly as it is in your own lives? Why or why not? I think that's really the, the crux of what we're getting at today. Do we, on a regular basis, experience the fullness of Jesus Christ in our lives? Well, one, one thing that I, I really hope for us and why we're doing this series is we believe that coming to the table every week helps us experience His fullness in our day-to-day. It's, it's almost like a springing board, a, a platform to experience Him, yes, here together, but also in our everyday lives. And Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, who uh, the whole book of Corinthians is, is about the early church coming together. It's experiencing uh, a lot of disunity and factions, and, and Paul is calling them to unity. And one of the biggest ways that we are united as God's people is at the table. And they were not doing that. Actually, the table was causing divisions between all of the people in Corinth. And so Paul writes this kind of passage in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, to help correct their practice of communion. And that's what he's doing with us today. So I I think we'll find some correctives in this passage for us too. Today, uh, uh, Paul posits that Christ gave us this table, the sacrament of communion, to experience him fully, mind, body, spirit, and soul. And so we're going to see three ways we experience him through the table. First, we experience a new covenant under Christ at the table. Second, we experience a new community through Christ at the table. And third, we experience a new conviction by Christ at the table. So let's jump in. Uh, And as we get into this text, uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'm going to stay kind of to the middle, which is uh, uh, printed out in your bulletin first. And then I'm going to kind of go to the first section and the last section later. Um, Because I I really want us to understand what we are doing uh, when we come to the table. And Paul kind of makes the crux of the passage here in verse 23 where he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it. And said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um. As I mentioned earlier, Todd and I, uh, well, sorry, not Todd and I, but when the whole point of this sermon series is to take a deep dive into every element of our worship service, right? And when Todd and I do communion every week, we try to give an intro or a bridge into communion. And, and the reason we do that is to help remind us how Christ takes the word that is preached and transforms us more into his image at the table. There's kind of a bridge between the word preached and the sacrament itself. But what can be frustrating about this, and and what I love about what we're doing this morning, is that that intro and bridge kind of only scratches the surface of what happens here at the table. And my hope is that we can really unpack it so that our hearts and and bodies and minds are really enriched with the fullness of Jesus. And what I want to remind you guys is that in the Old Testament people, there were two sacraments uh, that the people of Israel really 
celebrated together. The first is circumcision, which was the mark of God's people. And we believe that uh, baptism is the fulfillment of this idea of circumcision. Baptism is the mark of God's covenant people on us. But the second sacrament that the Old Testament people uh, participated in was Passover. And Passover was the Easter story of the Old Testament. It was kind of like the Jesus story of the Old Testament. Whenever you read the Old Testament, the thing that they always come back to was the people of Israel being uh, brought out of slavery miraculously by God. They always said the God who brought us out of Egypt, right? It was kind of the Easter Jesus story of the Old Testament. And what happened with Passover, as you all mostly know, is that uh, when Pharaoh's heart was still hardened, he would not let the Israelites go. Uh, the final plague that God sent down was to kill all of the firstborn sons of all of Egypt, including the Israelites, unless they had an unmarked and pure lamb, and the blood of that lamb was put over the door. And when that happened, uh, the angel of the Lord passed over that house, and that son was spared. And so this idea that God saved Israel and all of their sons through the blood of this lamb was uh, so important to them that every single year they celebrated Passover together as their sacrament. Now, we believe that communion is the fulfillment of Passover. And we believe that because exactly what we just read from here in 1 Corinthians the night he was betrayed, Jesus instituted the Passover feast with all of his 12 disciples. He was the one running the show, right? So he was, he was the one that was kind of taking them through each different aspect of Passover. Except that night, of all nights, there was no lamb. No lamb. No pure and new lamb for them to slaughter and eat and enjoy together like they were supposed to. Because Jesus was the lamb for them that night. It was his body that was broken and, and poured out for the sake of not just Israel, not just the firstborn sons, but for all of humanity. Jesus said, my blood will be poured out. My body will be broken. I will be the lamb, not for your sake, but for the world. You see, Jesus directly tied his death to Passover. This is why we believe that communion is the fulfillment of the Passover feast is our sacrament today. Don't you see? This is why we do communion every single week. Because this is the story of the gospel itself. When we couldn't save ourselves, when we constantly chose sin and rebellion day after day, Christ still died for us. He still gave his body and his blood to cover us so that we may be saved. And one of the biggest critiques, and this is, this is so, uh, I think this is so prevalent for us to think about. One of the biggest critiques of weekly communion, which we do here at Hope Chapel, is that it will become stale, right? The idea that it will lose its meaning the more that you do it. And I think my counter would be this. If the gospel and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your sake and for, your, and for mine is the story that we experience here at the table, if that idea becomes stale because you experience it every week, the problem is not with how often we do it. It's with our own hearts. The gospel is new every day for us. And it is the fullness of Jesus Christ himself. And if that becomes stale, it's on us, not on him. So what happens at the table? 
Well, throughout church history, there, there's uh, been a spectrum of thought, right? We know the, I'm sure some of y'all heard the term transubstantiation, the idea that when we institute communion, Jesus literally becomes the bread and the wine. Uh, we're literally eating his body and blood. We don't believe that. Um, on the other end of the spectrum would be those that see the table just as a symbol. It's just a memorial that we do because Jesus talked about it. Nothing more than a symbol. We would fall um, somewhere in the middle, maybe inching a little bit this way. Uh, we, in, we don't believe that it's his little body. We don't believe it's just a symbol. What we believe is that in a unique way, the true presence of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is present here at this table when we come and we take of the bread and we drink of the cup. Through our mysterious union with him, it's at this table that we do truly connect, unite with him, and experience his death and feast on his resurrection in a unique way. It's more than just a symbol. And I think the biggest reason that I would say that we believe that it's more than just a symbol uh, is the remembrance piece. So Paul quotes Jesus and says, do this in remembrance of me. Um, He's playing on an important Old Testament idea, and the way I'm going to explain this is um, that I went to a ludicrous concert one time. Um, <clears throat> when I was in St. Louis, uh, a big festival came to St. Louis, music festival, a bunch of different artists, and somehow I found myself one night at a ludicrous concert. And, um, you know, you just go to all of them when you go to these things. I was young and a lot more fun then. And um, so we're at this concert, and my buddy's with me, right? And he takes... He gets somehow to the front of the, kind of right by the stage, and he takes this incredibly epic picture of Ludacris, okay? Like lights behind him, it was amazing. And he posts it on his Instagram, right? Tags the festival. Well, Ludacris' social media manager sees this picture, thinks it's awesome, doesn't contact him, steals the picture, and posts it from Ludacris' main social media Instagram account. Steals his thing. And made it his own. And he DM'd him and tweeted at him. And of course they ignored him. You know, it was nothing. Um, it was a real stealing. It's not cool to do stuff like that, by the way. But this idea of remembrance is really similar, actually. What they're talking about in the Old Testament of remembering is what they would do is, uh, in the oral tradition of passing down the history of their people, they would say, I remember a time when God rescued me from Pharaoh out of Egypt. But this guy was like 200 years past getting saved from Egypt. Does that make sense? What they do when they say, I remember, is they personally put themselves somewhere else in history because it is their ancestors. And they say their history is actually my history. Just like Ludacris says, your picture is my picture because it's of me. Does that make sense? So there's this idea of remembrance that is actually a co-opting of a story and making it their own experience. So remembering for God's people is more about sharing an experience than actually remembering what happened. So when they remembered the Passover feast, they weren't just thinking about it. They were sharing in the experience of what happened to their ancestors in Egypt. And Jesus is taking that idea as, and then doing the same thing with himself. When you remember what I did for you, you are sharing in that experience with me. We are drawn to him and we experience his love, his sacrifice, his death, and his resurrection in, in new and more powerful ways. 
So what does this mean for us? If we do share in that experience together, what does that mean? Well, I've got a couple application points for us, and I'm actually going to put them on the screen for us so we can really think through them. First, we experience the abiding presence of Jesus at the table. John 6 says this, uh, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. This is an odd thing for John to say, especially all the way back in John 6. But with the understanding of the cross and the new covenant, it makes sense, right? It's through Jesus' body and blood that we're able to abide in him, connect with him, and he with us. So the table enables us to physically experience the fullness of Jesus who abides with me and with you. Second, we experience a strengthening of our faith at the table. So if you're like me, uh, often I, and I mentioned this last week in my expectant prayer, um, I struggle sometimes believing things that are true about Jesus. That he loves me, that he really wants the best for me, that I'm worthy of him, that he's working in this world right now. But this table, every single time I come to it, I'm reminded of his sacrifice and the outpouring of his love for me. And that strengthens my faith. And the same is true for you. Third, we experience gospel humility and grace at the table. So every time we come, we're reminded and humbled by our sin and the sacrifice that was necessary to pay for it, right? So it's a uniquely humbling thing to do to actually come to the table and confess our brokenness and and our ability to save ourselves. And yet, we are reminded that it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ that we are alive and that we can live and have eternity with him. Grace is unmerited favor, and this table reminds us of that. Fourth, we experience community at the table. So we're going to get to this in our next point, but at the table, uh, there's an idea that it's a level playing field for all of us. We're all united both in our sin and in the grace of Jesus. But not just that, it's a uniquely corporate thing that we do together when we come to the table. It strengthens our sense of community with one another. And finally, uh, we experience the first fruits of the new creation at the table. This table is a picture of the feast that we will eat one day and the new heavens and the new earth with all of God's people who throughout history have professed faith in Jesus. When Jesus returns and and dwells with us, like the trajectory of Scripture has shown us, we will eat together as God's people and we will feast with one another in the fullness of Jesus Christ. And we get a taste of that now at the table. So you see, we we experience abiding and true fellowship with Jesus. Our faith is strengthened, humility and grace renewed, community and new creation all here. The fullness of Jesus Christ at the table. Man, I don't want us to miss the beauty of that. And it brings us to our second point. So we experience a new covenant through Christ at the table. Now we say that we experience a new community under Christ at the table. So uh, all of that reverence and beauty and understanding that we just went through about the fullness of what happens here um, is exactly what the church in Corinth missed. There's an idea that uh, there's a leveling of the playing field, like I just mentioned, at the table. Um, and we as Christians, we come and uh, together we're almost confessing that. We're declaring that. All of us are united under this same idea of our sinfulness and grace when we come here. But Paul is, uh, at the beginning of this section, in verses 17 and 18, says this. He says, I do not commend you 
Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worst. In the first place, when you came together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And what was happening is, is that all of the church of Corinth, when they came together to worship, what they were doing is they were separating by socioeconomic status. The poor people were eating over here. The rich people were eating over here. People were bringing their own food. And the rich people were eating their fill. They were drinking their fill. The, young, the, the poor people couldn't. Also, the rich people were getting there way earlier than the poor people because they didn't have to work as much and they didn't have as many obligations. So they were coming. They weren't waiting for the rest of the people. They were taking of the Lord's Supper without them. And all of the socioeconomic divisions within the church at Corinth were on full display while they were worshiping together. And even worse, they were on full display when they took the Lord's Supper together. To this... Paul says it's humiliating and it shows a heart that despises one another that they were supposed to be in community with. The heart of the Lord's Supper, which is based on the remembrance and shared experience of what Christ did on the cross, was being split up, privatized, individualized, and divisive. The very opposite of its intent. And this idea leads us to something that I've kind of hinted at, but I haven't stated plainly. Uh, we tend to think about communion, right, as a uniquely individual thing. It's between me and God. I come and I confess my sin or I'm reminded of my sin and, and Christ's death for me. And I take of communion. And don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. It does have an individual focus. But I want us to remember that it's primarily a meal that we share together. There's a corporate emphasis of the Lord's Supper that we can't miss. And uh, as, I, as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking about this idea of how cool it is that we get to, as God's people, come together every single week and share a meal together. That all of the things that separate me and you, whether it's our genders, our ethnicities, our political and social convictions... Our personalities, the things that we like to do on our, on our own time. At the table, we are all united under Christ. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we do, maybe a football game, that all, you know, unites people of that many different backgrounds together. And there's not. And that's what's so cool is that we stand up and we walk down to the table Regardless of where we came from, who we are, and we share in this meal together. That is something that uniquely is uniting for us. I don't know if you've thought about it that way. And and I don't want to take the individual piece out because there is something beautiful about experiencing that between you and God. But I just, I want to broaden our horizon and remind us That what the Corinthian church did by allowing the table to become divisive, we can never let here. This table unites us together under Jesus Christ. And we get to share in that together. This is why it's so important for us to celebrate it every single week. Because if we're in conflict with one another, if we've hurt one another, if we've sinned against one another, we can always, always come to the table And be reminded that we are God's people being formed together into a community for the sake of his kingdom here in Greensboro and to the world. How cool is that?
Don't miss out again on that beauty. And it brings us to our final point. So we experience the fullness of Jesus at the table, and we experience the new covenant, a uh, new community, and now we're going to see that we experience a new conviction. Um, this, uh, when I was studying this week, I, I, this, the, the verses about um, drinking judgment on themselves, I've always kind of struggled with. What does that mean? Why, why do we need to check our hearts or each other's hearts before we come to the table? And Paul says, uh, if you do it in an unworthy manner, manner you'll be guilty. Let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. And we don't have a ton of time to get into this. Um, but what I love about this is it shows that, yes, they were uh, misinterpreting and using the table in a social way, but also in a spiritual way. And this is what they were doing. They were coming to the table without any acknowledgement of their sin, without a full examination of their hearts, and without an openness to the grace that was available to them. And we know this because they were doing haphazardly. They were taking it whenever they wanted. They were letting uh, the social divisions to, to split them up. Their hearts were not prepared to take the bread and drink the cup. So where are our hearts supposed to be then? How do we not eat, drink, eat and drink judgment on ourselves? And there's a lot of different ways that denominations and churches have considered this idea. Um, some said that if you have unconfessed sin, don't come to the table. Some have said if your heart isn't aligned in relationship with Jesus, don't come to the table. Some say that if you're in habitual sin, you shouldn't come to the table. And there's, I understand how many people have got to this conclusion. But I think what Paul is actually saying here is twofold. First, we do believe that the table is only open for those who do profess faith in Jesus. But the second, the only other thing that he says is that a proper examination of our hearts is what we need to do before we come to the table. What he means, I think, is, and it's important for us, he's not saying you have to come to the table pure. He's not saying you have to come to the table completely without sin or even without habitual sin. No. He's calling us to examine our hearts, to, yes, see our sin, to be knowledgeable of it, but even more so ready to embrace the forgiveness and grace that's freely given to us at communion. If we come to the table unrepentant without giving a second thought to our sin, but also our grace received from the cross, then the table will mean nothing to us. But the new conviction here to experience the fullness of Jesus is when we examine our hearts and see where we haven't let his grace and love in. That is where we are convicted. Where we still are stuck on our sin rather than his grace and goodness. Examining ourselves is more about God's grace for us rather than our worthiness to come to the table. And this is why it's so important. It reinforces this new conviction in us. It enables us to go out filled with Christ, renewed in the knowledge of his love, his goodness, and his grace for us, one on the cross. We don't leave the table feeling judged and condemned, but with a new conviction of his love and his grace. So when you come to the table today, what is propelling you to come? Is it guilt? Or is it the hope 
of being filled with the grace and love of Jesus despite your rebellion of him. Because that love and grace is yours. Your sin should not keep you from coming to the table, but a rejection of Jesus' grace should. Examine your hearts. Can you and will you accept his grace for you today at his table? Um, the first time, it was about a year, a little over a year in, um, before I was ordained, uh, that I instituted communion. And um, I was so nervous when I did it, uh, and some of y'all will remember this, uh, I dropped the lid um, in the warehouse, it was before we moved here, and it was like those concrete floors, and it was so loud, (laughs) like reverberated through the whole warehouse the lid kind of clanging around. Um, and I thought about that a lot this week. Why did I, why was I so nervous? Why did I drop that lid? And I think part of it is because I, I gave due reverence to the table. Um, but I think the other part of it is that uh, I misunderstood the table as well. Is that Todd and I get back here and we do institute the elements but it's not about what we do at all. It's about what Jesus has done. And what he has done is he came and he lived and he walked this earth and he died and he rose again so that we could be saved, so that we can have relationship with him and life eternal with him. And when we come to the table, it is his power, his goodness, his spirit, his grace that is moving in and through us and through the table. And it is that that renews us and restores us and enables us to go out into the world full of his grace and his goodness. That is what we experience at the table. That is the fullness that we experience. So wherever you are, if you have an ounce of faith in Jesus Christ, receive his goodness, his grace for you this morning. Come to the table, feast on his goodness, his fullness for you, and be reminded of his love. Amen.